Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You are tuned into the Joseph Benemy Show for Tuesday, October the 24th, 2023. I'm your host, Joseph Benemy. Thank you so much for joining in. Before we get to anything tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I have to give a great shout out to all of you out there who are watching the show in Alberta and in certain parts of British Columbia, or you're listening to the podcast. All I could say is winter has arrived, hasn't it? You know, it's really funny. I'm not saying that the fact that there's plummeting cold temperatures in that region or the fact that Calgary has a forecast of up to 25 centimeters of snow. None of that is proof that climate change, or at least man-made climate change, is not real. It's not proof that there's no such thing as global warming, but it is intriguing, isn't it? It is, you have to ask yourself, ladies and gentlemen, when you have the Secretary General of the United Nations giving a speech where he talks about how we've left the era of global warming and entered into the era of global boiling. That was the word he used. You know, very clever play on words. You have to give credit where it's due. Certainly from a, a rhetorical point of view, there's a lot to be said for what the Secretary General was presenting at the time. This is going back a couple of months now uh, to maybe three months. Anyway, you know, when, when you're talking to, when you have public officials using language like that to describe the climate, you know, and then you come across situations like this. And I already said, again, let me reiterate something we talked about earlier uh, in the uh, in the year on this show. And that was the fact that in the month of August here in Ottawa, central Canada and this includes Toronto and includes Hamilton you know for all of the news stories about heat waves etc that were going on everywhere we actually set a record for the coldest high temperature for the month of August in that region we never reached 30 degrees in fact I think the highest temperature I don't even think we reached 29 degrees certainly not here in Ottawa and I don't think we reached 29 degrees officially in any of the other cities. 
And that, by the way, is astonishing for that time of the year, August, which typically is the hottest time of the year here anyway in, in Canada's national capital region. Uh, and uh, it's just uh, never happens. A whole month. It was an unusually cool summer. We had periods of hot weather in July and in June. And, you know, when we hit September, we had a couple of days of uh, hot weather, as I like to say. We used to call that Indian summer, but I guess we don't call it Indian summer anymore. I, don't, I think we have to call it First Nations Aboriginal summer or something like that. In any event, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I, I just couldn't let the occasion pass without um, without spending just a minute bringing all of this to your attention and commiserating with all of you guys out there in the uh, in Western Canada. Not the far west, not the far left of Canada, but, you know, BC mainland, inland, I should say, the interior and into Alberta. So, anyway, I'm glad to see that you guys are surviving. I hope you're surviving because you know how it is these days. Every time there's any kind of a weather event that's a little bit outside of the norm, it's an extreme weather event. So, you know, I don't know. I haven't heard that they're calling in the Canadian Armed Forces yet to dig people out. Not that we have too much of a military capacity to dig people out these days, but that's a subject for a different show. In any event, tonight I want to talk about, we haven't done this for in any kind of detail for uh, a couple of weeks, and that is to give you an update on what's happening with the Freedom Convoy trial that is ongoing still here in Canada, here in Ottawa. But before I do that, I have a couple of things I want to mention about the Gaza war and about the way the media is presenting the war in Gaza and particularly in the context of last night's show where we spent a considerable amount of time talking about misinformation on the internet, disinformation on the internet. We didn't really get into how bad the media can be. I, I, we touched on some of the things with respect to the reports that had been going on a week ago on how Israel had allegedly bombed this hospital when it turned out it, that's not at all what had happened. But the mainstream media ran with it. Um, and it turned out to be wrong. And how the many, most of the mainstream media outlets that were at first reporting this uh, missile attack by Israel on a Gaza hospital as a fact, had to walk it back. And in fairness, most of them have walked it back, albeit reluctantly. And uh, here in Canada, uh, the Prime Minister, the government of Canada, that at first condemned the attack, now is saying that they believe that there's credible reason to believe that it wasn't Israel that perpetrated this attack, that in fact it had happened the way the Israelis said it happened right from the word go, and that was that it was a an errant rocket that had been fired toward Israel from nearby the hospital that fell into the parking lot and the fuel that had not been expended yet ignited and you had a firestorm in the parking lot and a lot of cars were burned out and possibly people died or were injured. But the hospital remained untouched, except for perhaps a few broken windows. And we're not entirely sure that the broken windows in the visual evidence, the photographic evidence, were actually caused by that particular firestorm. Perhaps they were, perhaps they weren't. 
But in any event, I, I only mention this because, you know, it, it unequivocally, we all know that Israel didn't bomb this hospital. Um, uh, we all know what the cause was. But even then, even then, the government of Canada feels that it can't say that in unequivocal terms. So they have to couch it in, well, there's credible evidence. And uh, uh, we, what we do now think with a high degree of certainty, whatever that's supposed to be, a high degree of certainty, come on, guys. In any event, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we talk, talked a lot about that last night. I encourage you to go back and watch last night's show or listen to the podcast. But what I want to point out to you is there was, uh, about 11 days ago, there was a report by the CBC, CBC being the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the chief correspondent of the CBC in the Middle East, a reporter by the name of Adrian Arsenault. Adrian Arsenault is a longtime reporter. She's a senior, a veteran of the media. Um, and, uh, you know, she's been with the CBC for a long time. So you would think that given her experience, her maturity, her senior position with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, that there would be an element of caution, uh, et cetera, around her report. But nevertheless, nevertheless, ladies and gentlemen, Adrian Arsenault, 11 days ago, in that uh, live interview with an anchor here in Canada, made an allegation that was really quite astonishing. I'm going to play the clip for you, okay? So, and then we'll talk about it. So here's what she had to say. The bombardment continues right now. You've got Palestinians who have been moving from their homes, a room in their home, to the hallway, to the basement, then they decamp to someone else's home, and then that that becomes a, a, at risk, so they decamp again to a car. You've got... Uh, roughly 330 million people who are internally displaced within that tiny enclave. So, so keep an eye on what happens with them. The bombardments, uh, the airstrikes will continue. Israel says it's dropped some 6,000 bombs so far, uh, though they say they are aiming for the, the Hamas infrastructure. Now, 330 million people displaced in Gaza as a result of Israeli bombing. The whole of Gaza, and remember Gaza is a, is a territory. It's a small territory. It's a very small territory. But within that territory, there's a city. And the city is Gaza City. But the population of the entire Gaza Strip is only about 2.2 million people. 2.2 million people. And yet she claims that 330 million people have been displaced by Israeli bombing in Gaza. Now, in fairness to Adrian Arsenault, if you watch the clip, again, she looks really tired. And you can tell, I think, I think she's exhausted. And I think that it's entirely possible, in fairness to her, I think it's entirely possible that she misspoke. It happens. People say things and then they realize afterwards, oh, did I really say that? I can't believe I said that. Of course I didn't mean that. She probably meant 330,000. I think that's an exaggerated number to, as well, but, but it's a plausible number given the population. And the fact that the Israelis have asked for 
people who live in Gaza City to leave the city and move south for civilians get out of harm's way. So if she said 330,000, again, I, I would question that number. I think it would be high, but it's plausible. I suspect strongly that that's what she meant to say. I don't think she was purposely lying. The reason I'm saying that is because there's no way that Adrian Arsenault thinks that the population of the Gaza Strip is 330 million people. Don't believe it. So that's why I'm saying I think that she probably misspoke. But the point I'm making here, what I'm bringing to your attention, ladies and gentlemen, is the fact that nobody at the CBC seems to have noticed this. Nobody at the CBC has issued a correction, a retraction. And so that report is still out there. And I know it's still out there because I got that clip off of the internet today, October the 24th, 11 days later. Why hasn't the CBC pulled it down off of its site? Why hasn't the CBC posted on the, the uh, YouTube page where that report is playing over and over again, a correction at a minimum? So as I say, I don't think that Adrian Clarkson, sorry, not Adrian Clarkson, she was another CBC uh, icon, Adrian Arsenault, I don't believe really frankly that Adrian Arsenault set out to deceive anybody. I don't think she purposely exaggerated. As I say, you know, if, if she had said two million people, okay, uh, maybe she's exaggerating on purpose. I don't know. But 330 million, it's so crazy. It's That is, ladies and gentlemen, 15,000% more than the total population of the Gaza Strip. 15,000% more than the total population of the Gaza Strip. That's just outside of the realm of any kind of... I mean, when you talk about wild-eyed, that's a wild-eyed exaggeration. And it's so huge. It's so way out there, as I say. I, I just... I, I, I believe that she probably just misspoke. She was overtired. She wasn't thinking about what she said. But again, the story here, my friends, is not that she said this. The story here is that it's clearly, it's clearly a mistake. Nevertheless, the CBC doesn't feel any obligation to re retract the mistake to correct the record to remove the wrong information from the internet from its own web services it just lets it out there and the question that has to be asked is how is this responsible journalism how does this fit in with the statements the pontification the great solemn proclamations that journalists make in especially at the CBC, about journalistic integrity. Now, you know, I had seen this clip a week ago, and uh, I, I was surprised by it. Then I let it go. I didn't really do anything about it. Uh, and then I went back to it today just to see if it was still there. And when it was still there, okay, that was a big, that was a big surprise to me. Um, so you know what I decided I would do? 
I decided before I decided to bring it to your attention on the show, I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a comment. And it's not going to be a, uh, a, uh, an insulting comment, an offensive comment. It's not going to be you idiots at the CBC. No, it's just a exactly what I've said. Adrian Arsenault probably misspoke. She looks pretty tired in this clip. She clearly didn't mean 330 million people. There are only 2.2 approximately million Gazans who live in that territory, Palestinian Arabs who live in that territory. So maybe she meant 330,000. I don't know. But, you know, as, as a viewer, I thought that I would just be helpful and correct the record. But I couldn't do that. Why? Because the CBC won't let comments be posted. Simple as that. So you're left with no choice. Do they have egg on their face? Ugh. I, I don't see how you can describe it any other way, figuratively speaking, of course. But again, it's it's not like it's not like this is something that they couldn't figure out themselves. Where is the editorial oversight? Clearly doesn't exist at CBC. Clearly doesn't exist, and that's a real problem. So anyway, um, I wanted to bring that to your attention, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, if you, well, you can see the clip. I already played it, so I don't have to tell you where you can find it. Um, okay, so we're going to go for a break, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back in a couple of minutes here on the Joseph Benemy Show. Don't go away. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are back. Thank you for staying with us. You are tuned into the Joseph Benemy Show for Tuesday, October the 2024th, 2023. 
I'm your host, Joseph Benamy. Okay, so I uh, promised that we would get into an update, give you an update on what's been happening with the Freedom Convoy trial that, yes, continues to go on here in Ottawa. I'm not sure what the day of this is now, but certainly we're way over the original 16 days that were originally set aside for this trial. So um, we're back into it again this week, uh, and I promised you that I would spend some time this evening giving you an update on what's been going on. Uh, a couple of very interesting developments uh, last week and then, then yesterday. So uh, with respect to last week, what we've had is, first of all, we had a period of testimony from people who were living in the area that were feeling... Um, intimidated and the crown prosecutors decided that they would call some of these witnesses and I'm sorry to say that the judge allowed these witnesses to testify and I'm not entirely sure on what legal basis they were allowed to testify because they couldn't possibly offer evidence with respect to whether or not the two individuals Tamara Leach and Chris Barber were um, uh, were uh, in fact um, guilty of the charges uh, that they've been charged with mischief. Predominantly, that's what it is. Again, I know you you have to shake your head. How do you have a mischief trial that lasts for three weeks? Uh, it's it's really I I can't even begin to offer an explanation for that in any event one has to wonder why the judge allowed testimony from any of these people as i said they they can't testify on the question of whether or not these two individuals broke the law that's the only question that's really a triable issue here Um, and if certain individuals felt that they were afraid they were intimidated etc um how is that evidence of anything that's just somebody's feelings very subjective really very difficult to cross-examination on to refute to cross-examine on so i don't know on on what basis the judge allowed this testimony but she did and so there it is it's now entered into the record it's made this thing draw out further and further and then last week finally we got to some testimony from the police who actually were interacting with the uh convoy organizers and protests and there were a few things that came out that i think are really important facts the first being an admission on the part of the police, A, that they were in regular communication with the organizers. Uh, and so, you know, it's very difficult uh, well, to uh, to imagine that if the very police are org- talking back and forth with organizers, in particular with Chris Barber, who's one of the individuals on trial here, how do you then say that this individual, Sorry, Chris Barber, um, was uh, guilty of mischief for failing to follow police instructions. In fact, on the contrary, the police representatives last week, one of them admitted that uh, when uh, convoy drivers were first coming to, to Ottawa, that they were actually being directed by police to the downtown area because many of them didn't know Ottawa. 
So, so people were directed downtown. We already have the testimony from the director of emergency preparedness here in Ottawa that he also had been in communication with organizers of the uh, of the uh, uh, liaising with organizers of the convoy through a particular individual who was tasked by convoy organizers with that job, um, and uh, and he had reached an agreement with him whereby trucks were moved from certain streets to ensure better passage for uh, emergency vehicles in the event that god forbid there was an emergency um the police and fire and ambulance could get through paramedics could get through so and and they did that and in fact he was the one apparently who had suggested that people maybe should just park on wellington street and and of course that's what happened and that's what the testimony was He said a few things the next day that almost contradicted that, but, you know, we'll set that aside for a minute. Anyway, the point is, it's clear from the testimony of the police and city officials that they were in constant communication with the organizers of the convoy, or at least with a liaison representative somebody representing the convoy organizers and that the police were giving instructions and that the convoy organizers were following these instructions so that that has come out at a few various points in the trial and it it came out again last week but what's really interesting about last week is that when all of this was being discussed and revealed um the defense attorneys representing uh, Tamara Leach and Chris Barber wanted to see the messages. Let's take a look at the text messages. Let's take a look at the exchanges between you and the organizers, convoy organizers. And it turns out, guess what? Those text messages don't exist anymore. They were all deleted. Now, I know... If you're a conspiracy theorist, you're right away jumping to the conclusion that they were deleted on purpose as part of some broader conspiracy. I don't think so. The explanation was the explanation was that uh, there was a software update to the system. Uh, and as a consequence of that, they lost all of these text messages. So uh, it's a, an innocent explanation. It's plausible. Um, what was the outcome from this exchange? Well, the outcome is that the uh, defense asked for some information about this software update. Um, you know, give us some details. Let us see the, the, the background to it, etc. Um, and, you know, I think that's a reasonable request to ask. And if you're the police or the, or the Crown, what you would say is, yeah, you know, we don't want conspiracy theories going on out there. So it was a perfectly innocent thing. So, yeah, we'll provide that information. But unfortunately, my friends, that's not what they did. What they have done is uh, they have said, well, we're not releasing any of the information to you the defense on this particular question without some kind of a court order. You know, I I still don't believe that there was some sort of a conspiracy behind the the deletion of all of these texts. The explanation that was advanced by the Crown, by the, uh, the police services, 
is yeah. perfectly reasonable. It's perfectly plausible. So I still don't think that there's a conspiracy afoot here. But I talk about imbecility. I mean, surely you have to realize that by making it a problem for the crown to enough for the crown, but for the defense to obtain this information, it makes it look like you're hiding something, which just is going to feed the whole conspiracy industry out there. So why do that? It's to me, it's colossally stupid. Anyway, that's where we're at right now. Um, uh, with that particular part of the trial, but an, a really fascinating, and I think big development occurred yesterday, Monday here in court. And that was that the crown dropped the charges against Tamara Leach for violating the conditions of her bail originally. Now, when Tamara Leach was arrested at the end or towards the end of the protest last year, she spent about two weeks in jail and then she was released on bail. And one of the conditions of the bail was that she couldn't communicate with any of the other organizers of the, uh, of the, the convoy, except through lawyers. Strange, in my view, strange, um, uh, condition of bail. Sometimes you hear about people who are accused of a violent crime or something and they're told you can't communicate with so-and-so and that because you don't want them to be um, intimidating witnesses or influencing witnesses. But that wasn't the case here. In any event, this was the bail condition. Now, shortly after her release, um, there was a fundraising dinner put on by the Center for Constitutional Foundation, the Constitution Foundation here in Canada, in Toronto, uh, and they gave an award to uh, Tamara Leach, and uh, the dinner was in Toronto, so they asked her to uh, come to the dinner to Toronto and uh, receive your award, a Freedom Award, or something of that nature. So she did. And while she was in Toronto, it just so happened that she also was sitting at a table with one of the other organizers of the convoy. Uh, she goes back home to Alberta, and all of a sudden, the Crown has issued a Canada-wide arrest warrant for her for having violated the terms of her bail. So, she's arrested at home in Alberta, and she's brought back in handcuffs to Ontario, to Ottawa, where she spent a month in jail before she was released again. This is a, a grotesque miscarriage of justice. The whole thing has been a huge black eye for Canada's justice system. But that especially, that especially, ladies and gentlemen, was a... a terrible miscarriage of justice and uh, yesterday finally after a year and a half more than a year and a half the crown decided to drop those charges just those charges the bail violation charges now I don't know how you get a conviction on those 
So probably they dropped the charges because they didn't think they could get a conviction. That would be my guess. But of course, they're not admitting it. They're saying they dropped the charges. Why? Well, because so much time has passed and the trial has dragged on now overall quite some time and we want to prioritize what we're doing. So we're going to drop those charges. They're not really a big deal in relation to the the massive main charge of uh, uh, mischief. <laughs> so that, ladies and gentlemen, brings you up to date. We're still going. The trial is still going on. Um, there were hearings here in Ottawa today. I don't know what happened. I haven't been following the uh, all of the proceedings today as closely as I have from time to time in the past. So um, we will look at what's gone on tonight and tomorrow morning. And if anything significant has happened, we'll give you a detailed update. And in any event, I'll probably just update you anyway tomorrow. So you'll have to tune into tomorrow's show. For as the trial turns, Freedom Convoy 2023. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have to go for another break. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a couple of minutes here on the Joseph Benemy Show. Don't go away. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. And we are back. Thanks for staying with us. I am Joseph Benemy, and I am the host of the Joseph Benemy Show, to which you are tuned in. As I say, thanks for staying with us. All right, let's uh, let's shift to something else, just as crazy as what we were just talking about in the last segment, the uh, the ongoing legal fiasco, the trial of organizers, two, just two of the organizers of the Freedom Convoy here in Ottawa in the early part of 2022. Um, and let's move down the Highway 401 to Toronto, Canada's largest city. Um, and I know, you know, we have international listeners, so I don't want to bore you with the goings-on specifically in Toronto except to bring up something that's going happening there that illustrates a broader problem. Um, the city of Toronto now has officially released and is on the verge of adopting its plan to deal with the housing crisis here in Canada. Uh, it has come up with a plan to build 60,000 new homes, 60,000 new homes, affordable homes, Affordable homes meaning probably townhouses, garden homes, um, and apartments. We're not talking about detached or um, uh, or or single homes. We're just talking about townhouses, 
okay, row houses and apartments, because that's what the affordable housing is. So the city of Toronto, in addition to regular private construction, has come up with a plan to construct 60,000 of these homes. Sounds ambitious, and it is, uh, but it's not undoable. Why am I bringing this to your attention? Well, ladies and gentlemen, there are two reasons. Well, the first reason is that the price tag that they've come up with in order to do this over seven years, 60,000 homes over seven years, set that aside for a minute. The price tag overall to accomplish this, $30 billion. Now, what happens often in government is they'll come up with a price tag, looks pretty big, and people will go, that's a lot of money, or it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but they won't really break it down. They don't really analyze what's in that $30 billion. So I'm going to do that for you, and it's really, really very simple. The question, when I saw $30 billion, which is, I think, a lot of money here for housing, that's my first impression. So I decided to do the math. Very simple equation. How much is going to go in each one of those units at a cost of $30 billion? In other words, what is $30 billion divided by 60,000 homes? The price tag, ladies and gentlemen, $500,000 per unit. $500,000 per unit. A half a million dollars per unit, ladies and gentlemen. Now, half a million dollars, at least here in Ottawa, will get you a pretty good house. It's not going to get you top of the line. But it's going to get you a pretty good house. And if you're talking about buying an apartment, if you're talking about buying a condo in Toronto, uh, half a million dollars, that'll probably get you a pretty good condo. Even in Toronto. A half a million dollars. Did I say billion? Unlike the CBC, I'm not going to go back and check it right now. So if I said half a billion, I meant half a million. Okay, so uh, half a million dollars per unit. I, when you think about it, ladies and gentlemen, that that's that's crazy. But that's what they're budgeting for. And they're not going to do this for the private sector, ladies and gentlemen. They're doing this as the prime contractor. That is part of the plan. They don't want to go and hire somebody in the private, the private sector contractors to do this. They don't want to even do it through a not-for-profit contractor. Yeah, and yes, those organizations do exist. No, no, they're going to be the prime contractors. So the city of Toronto now is planning on building 60,000 housing units over the next seven years and to do it at a cost of $30 billion and to do it as the prime contractor. So yes, you now have the city of Toronto in direct competition, if the plan gets adopted and proceeds, will be in direct competition with private sector contractors, construction contractors out there. Uh, how do you compete with the government on this level? So that's going to come with a whole bunch of, I promise you this, I promise you this, 
you know the rule of unforeseen consequences. Being the prime contractor, okay, is going to come with a whole slew of issues, difficulties, problems, complexities that I promise you the City of Toronto is not prepared to deal with and probably hasn't even considered. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. But this is what they want to do. The point I would make to that is that there's no way they're going to do this for $30 billion. That's the price tag that they have right now. I promise you it's going to be it's maybe not double, but it will be significantly more by the time this is said and done than $30 billion. But the other side to this is this. 60,000 housing units over a period of seven years. And if the plan is approved, let's say the plan is approved today. They're not debating it today or voting on it today, but let's say the plan hypothetically was approved today. By the time they get the land secured, they get all the surveying done, they have all of the permits, etc., put into place, you're looking at maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe even more before a shovel is even in the ground. Which is why it's a seven-year project. It's not seven years, uh, 60,000 divided by seven. um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to build, let's say we're going to build 10,000 units um, uh, in the first three years. Well, 10,000 units per year in the first three years, that's never going to happen. Most of that 60,000 units are going to be built two years plus from now. So my question is this, how does that help people today? And the answer is it doesn't. So what you have to do, you have to find ways to free up the housing construction market now. And nothing will free it up faster than getting rid of all of the extraneous, unnecessary red tape that municipal governments have and impose on developers. Red tape that increases the cost of development and that makes it something that takes a long time to get approval for. And if you do that, ladies and gentlemen, if you reduce the financial burden that you're imposing on developers, if you reduce the red tape, if you speed up the process of granting permits for construction, that will do more to build housing faster than what we're talking about right now. Because the private sector does it and does it very well. And if you want the private sector to build lower cost housing, then let them build it, mandate it if you have to. And it doesn't have to be owned by the city. It doesn't have to be owned and operated and rented out by the city, but the city could create, I mean, look, the city governments provide all kinds of, 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 uh, Restrictions. They put in place all kinds of restrictions. They impose 
and mandate all kinds of construction rules and measures, etc. And you know the how the, the the width of stairs for Pete's sake. Go through all of your red tape, all of your rules, your regulations. Um, go through everything that you have in the building code. Be ruthless. Don't sacrifice people's safety, but get rid of all of the requirements that don't add to safety. And then, then mandate, okay, look, here's this piece of property. You want to develop it. Okay, we want you to develop this property, um, uh, but we don't want you to build four-bedroom and five-bedroom houses with uh, two-car garages and three-and-a-half bathrooms. We just want the one- and the two-bedroom houses like we did after the Second World War when we had all of those veterans coming back and we built a lot of one- and two-bedroom houses. You know, you've seen them, the small ones, the matchbox houses in certain neighborhoods. You could still do the same thing. Starter homes. Starter homes from people. And then tell people the truth. Tell young couples the truth. Tell them, look, you know, I know you want the three-car garage. I know you want the, the SUV and then the, the family car. I know you want to have two and a half bathrooms and four bedrooms and a playroom and a rec room and all that. But when you're starting out, maybe you have to start out at the bottom of the housing market to a certain degree. Settle on just a, a one-bedroom house. Okay, start paying a mortgage, build some equity, build your credit, and then move into something larger. That's the way it's always been done in the past. And it worked. It just, am I the only person out there, and I don't believe I am, so it's a rhetorical question, but am I really the only person out there who sees a very strong correlation between this growth of government, between the government increasing its requirements on whatever it is. We're talking about the housing market now, but we could be talking about a lot of different things. And the increased cost, the length of time it takes to get things done, Pull back. I'm not saying pull out of the regulatory regime over construction of housing. I'm not saying pull out altogether. I'm a conservative. I'm not a libertarian. I believe that there's a role for government to play. But it's overdone now. And there's nothing, ladies and gentlemen, contributing more to the crisis that we have, the shortage in housing, than government policy. And I will say this, I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. One of the critical things that we need to do, and I know this is not under the control of the municipal government, but it is under federal government control, and that is we need to reduce the number of people that we have coming into Canada right now. I am not anti-immigrant. This is not an argument for cultural cohesion. This is not an argument for any of that stuff. Those may be important issues, but the main issue right now vis-a-vis housing is that we are bringing in our population is growing too fast. 
I just said and we are providing housing at too low a rate. Post. So we have a high demand, we have low um, supply, and that, ladies and gentlemen, unless you're going to start itself. regulating housing prices, which nobody <laughs> wants, that is what's going to drive uh, housing prices up and property prices and up. A link too. There are other things. We've talked about them before. Okay. Are you, are you listening but to those me? are the two main things. Okay, the government policy reads, the conflict has is everything. In Israel. Immigration, Vladimir, red tape, who is all of that stuff. The Do that. Address those issues, and they can be addressed very quickly, and you will see an explosion in, in private sector investment in housing. Now he is using his private jet and then once we've achieved whatever the balance is that we're looking for, you want to increase the population growth again through immigration? Fine. But let's make sure that it's coordinated so that we have a balance between the number of people that we're bringing in and our increasing housing stock. Without forgetting that we have Canadians who are procreating as well. No, All right, I'm ladies and gentlemen, we are going to go for our final break. And when we come back, Today in History. Okay, hang on. And welcome back to the Joseph Benemy Show. I'm your host, Joseph Benemy. Thank you so much for staying with us. Heading into the home segment, which means, as always, this day in history. And it was an, a busy day overall in history. Uh, a few things. You know, I'm not going to make a whole list of all of the things, but one of the things uh, that is particularly relevant today on this day in 1945, the United Nations officially came into existence. Now, here's a little teaser, ladies and gentlemen. Tomorrow, we're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about the United Nations and the disaster that it has become. I have some interesting video shooting, or video footage of some of the debates that were going on, particularly around the current fighting in the Middle East. You won't want to miss that, so make sure that you tune into the show tomorrow night and tell your friends about it as well. What else happened on this day in history? Interesting. This day in 2003 was the last supersonic commercial passenger flight. British Airways flew its last Concorde flight on this day. Air France, which was the other big owner of Concords, had already stopped operations, largely because of the, uh, there was a, a crash of one of the Concords in Paris, uh, and uh, it, uh, it led to the decision, ultimately, to stop flying the Concorde. On this day in 1992, if you're a sports fan, the Toronto Blue Jays won the World Series, first team based outside of the United States to win a World Series. Uh, and also on this day, in 1938, no, I'm sorry, what am I saying? 1938, good grief. 1861. 
1861, the first telegraph message was sent in the United States and received, obviously, on this day in 1861, effectively ending the need for the iconic Pony Express. So on this day in 1861, the telegraph started to take the place of the Pony Express. Lots of other things happened on this day, but those are the ones that I wanted to highlight. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, it's been a blast. We will have to do this again tomorrow night. Uh, as I said, tomorrow we're going to talk a lot more about the United Nations, what it's become, uh, are there alternatives to it, whether we should stay with it or not. Lots of these questions out there, and we're going to get into some detail on that. So you won't want to miss tomorrow night's show. Uh, in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, do check out the website, www.josephbenemy.com, all one word without the hyphen. While you're there, you can listen to any of our podcasts. We have the podcast archive right there. Check out our list of recommended reading. And if you have any suggestions on any books that you think ought to be included in that list, or if you have any comments at all about the show, about the website, about anything at all, send me an email. I do read my emails. Just use the contact form right there on the website. And one final thing, ladies and gentlemen, I've mentioned this before, and I want to bring it to your attention again, in case you didn't know, there's this new website out there, conservativecanada.net. Conservative Canada, all one word. It's new. It's new. And uh, there are a handful of, of podcasts that you can access through there. The whole idea, I think, is just to Make sure that there's a central place where people can start to get information about common sense conservative ideas through podcasts, etc. And I'm sure that the site is going to grow as well. So check it out and tell your friends about it. ConservativeCanada.net All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for me for tonight. So thank you very much for joining in. We will catch you tomorrow night here on the Joseph Benamy Show. In the meantime, God bless and please, please don't drink the Kool-Aid.